Hello, and welcome back to They Made Another One, where each week we discuss an off-forgotten installment in a franchise and see if you should check it out for yourself. I'm one of your hosts, Corey, and I don't do a lot of supposing. And with me, I've got Mitch. How does he know these things? <laughs> I was really hoping that's what you were going to do. <laughs> or There's so much good screaming <laughs> available for, for use. Facts! Facts! <laughs> I don't need any of extra! Ooh, ooh. Dude, he's the king of screaming. Genuinely. There's a lot. Just uncontested king of screaming. Or here, here's another underrated yeah. one. Okay. Yeah, my wife. She takes off a glass as she walks out of the house, up the street, you know, starts bumping into shit. Yeah, that one's very good. Um, Liam is not here. So, uh, as you'll know, last week he came to us live from a car. Um, he's still in the car. He just hasn't been able to get out of the car. Kind of like that time I was at sea. It's just like that. So Definitely not a sometimes clause being evoked here. Not even a little bit. So, if if he's got a way to like watch the movie on his phone in there, maybe maybe we'll hear from him later if he gets a chance to see it. If not, hopefully uh, we get him out of the car for next week um but he's not able to be with here be here with us right now which is a shame because instead of being nine men short of the movie's title we are 10 men short of the movie's title um which of course is about 12 angry men boy are they angry boy oh boy they're so fucking mad and boy are they men Boy, are they. Yeah, undeniably. It's just a swath of dudes. It's a dozen dudes. Well, I don't think some of them would appreciate being described as dudes, but no. you get what I mean. I feel like some of them might like turn to dust if you called them a dude. Yeah, like they Even don't really know. Dates back to 1860. Yeah, they don't like really they know what that is. A dude? A what? And then... <laughs> Yeah, I'm not using it in the 1860s sense, so that's the thing no. that gets them. They're like, oh, am I in a ranch? And it's like, nah. Of course <laughs> not. That's what it is, right? Dude ranch? Uh, I think if it's just like a, if you're calling a guy a dude, I don't, I don't really know what, what it means. I think it's just a thing that you call someone. Well, it's time to define the word dude. Um, <laughs> noun, a man, a guy. Um, verb. Dress up elab- elaborately. Quote, my brother was all duded up in silver and burgundy. Ah, and, and okay. From oh. 1870 to the 1960s, dude primarily meant a male person who dressed in an extremely fashionable manner, a dandy, yeah. or a conspicuous, citified person who was visiting a rural location. It's like calling someone a city slicker. So a dude ranch is where city folk can go to fuck with a horse. I bet. Ah, it's all coming together. Dude, it's all coming together. And then Google just goes, what is dude for girl? <laughs> dudette. What is dude for girl? Dude, this is dudess. And it's like, ah, the dudess. Ah, yes. <laughs> Polish <laughs> off the silverware. The dudess <laughs> is coming. Um, yeah, wow. That's uh that's just bullshit. Ain't nobody saying that. Um so interesting 
interesting thing we've got going on this week. I think it's fair to say that most people listening to this, certainly if you live in North America, have seen the original movie that uh, was remade here. Um, if if you were ever in a classroom, certainly in a law classroom, but even like more generic classes than that, there's a good chance you watched Twelve Angry Men. Did you watch Twelve Angry Men in a classroom, Mitch? Uh yes, I did, but I'd I'd seen it before as of well. Of course, you would see um, it before. You know, I've, you're, I've you're seen Mitch on the, <laughs> I've seen it on the stage uh, like one time with like an amateur production as well, um, which was it was really well done. Um, no, I think it's it's. Uh, I feel like a lot of people have seen it, but at the same time, if I'm like talking about like legal dramas, we're talking about like the legal dramas that we like with somebody. I've come across a lot of people who haven't seen this movie, and I've, it is old. Like the original is, but 1957, right? So yeah, I feel like a lot of people watched it in school, and it's one of those older movies that a lot of people have a relationship with, and it's one of the ones that's aged really well, um, in a lot of ways. Like it, it, yeah. I think it's still, think how... it's still effective. Yeah, I think how theatrically it's presented goes a long way for that. I don't mean theatrically in like silly. Yeah, like how just like stagey it is. Yeah, yeah, it's a t- sort of t- a timelessly constructed movie where um, it, it's just so simplistic and so theatrical um, that I, I think it just holds up. It's just a performance heavy sort of really quick drama with a very tight script. So. And that's why it's like still being remade today. Like in on, it still plays all over the world on stages. Yeah, um, and and not in a way that requires a ton of editing or updating. I guess is more what I want to say. Um, or though that you could update or remix one way or the other and still get like an equally compelling outcome. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. It, it really doesn't see that much updating in a lot of ways. I mean, sometimes when it's like a, if it's a stage adaptation, it also sometimes goes by the title like Twelve Angry Jurors" because having twelve dudes like doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't really work. Yeah, that that element is very um, much a product of it was 1957. Well, yeah, and the the script itself with the, for a teleplay was written in 1954, and and in 1957 there was a uh, a law that was passed. Um, which sort of gave women the uh, the right to serve on like jury duties. In 1975, it was found unconstitutional for women not to serve, uh, not to be able to serve in jury jury duties. So there was like this, you know, 20 year period where uh, different states like gradually let women in to serve on jury duties. And then in 1968 in New York, that's when women were first sort of given the the right to serve on 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 juries. So when the time that this film was kind of came out, that wasn't that wasn't a thing. It's, it's weird the way that the sort of the sphere that this particular film occupies, because you can't quite tell when it's set. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think it's set the year they made it. And I think that they were just okay with some stuff that I almost said anachronistic. That's not the word I want, but I think they just felt okay with some stuff feeling a bit dated or strange. Yeah. It, like, it does. That's the way I read it. Like, I don't think they've like, consciously set it any later or rather earlier mm-hmm. yeah i mean we can kind of unpack that later when we get into our 
our thoughts about it because I feel like that's one of the things that kind of makes this movie interesting. But there's yeah. definitely a lot to pick apart there. That element and just the race element, I think, are the two biggest like shifts from for sure the the film that most people would know. But and also that's what I meant. Like obviously with like the laws changing, but just like Twelve Angry Men on its face. Like what I mean by like the updating and stuff is like you could put women in it and you could put people that aren't white in there and you could put you know like queer people in there you can still do it and fundamentally if you use these same bones like it's still gonna hit like every time it's yeah, just good i think fundamentally at the core of 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 the the story it's just sort of a, a, a story about like humanity and i think like the vanity of 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 humans and, and the vanity of like perception and and uh, experience and and all of those things are uh, just sort of colliding with the law. So I think it's kind of like a, a timeless story with, with sort of um, archetypes and, and outsiders and insiders and just sort of like different clashes that I think could be redressed for any time. It's, it's timeless in that regard. Right. Yeah. I don't know. It's weird. Usually we have like this big sort of rollicking preamble for 35 minutes nowadays. I don't know what else to say about 12 angry men it's it's fucking it's 12 angry men you know it's 12 angry men 12 angry dudes they're it's angry. a dozen d- disappointed dudes um cast and crew i yeah sure i mean it feels like we're getting here with such brisk speed but um my god it's been 10 minutes <laughs> that's what i'm saying it's usually 30 by the time we get there in, in mm. more recent episodes. Yeah. Liam did point out when he, he he was able to hear last week's episode from his car, and he did mention that uh, it was originally like under an hour and that that's so brisk because you guys went like big time long when I was trapped in a car or wh- whatever I was doing when I wasn't here. And uh, yeah, I guess and maybe we're just keeping it tight. I don't know. Well, we'll see. I mean, <laughs> the original 12 Angry Men was shot in three weeks. So <laughs> we'll see how quick we can pod. Yeah, three weeks. Um, all right. So uh, this is directed by friend of the show, William Friedkin. You know him, you'll love him. Is he your friend? Yeah, we've talked about him. Kind of a, a problematic friend to have, but I do like his movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you can't win them all. Um, <laughs> it, it'd be like saying our good friend Paul Schrader. It's like, ah, he's yeah. says, he, Paul. You're saying some shit, Paul. Get off Facebook. But um, you know. But boy, uh, can he make a movie? But boy, can he spin some reels? <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Um, yeah, William Friedkin. I'm not like. You know who William Friedkin is. I don't need to tell you. The Exorcist. The French Connection. We've already talked about him. A sorcerer. Yeah. We've been talking about him. We've been on that, that Friedkin vibe. Uh, it's written by uh, Reginald Rose. Who also wrote the original. Yeah. Like, they're just... That's the, the, the credit that's in there. Yeah. I do find it interesting that like there's relatively minimal updates to that. Like obviously Reginald Rose wasn't writing about Muhammad Ali or no, wait, did I just get the boxer wrong? Uh, yeah, that's right. Is it Muhammad Ali? Did yeah. I say in the movie? I said that and then my brain went, no, they say Mike Tyson. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> like I just panicked for a second. I was like, did I get uh, that wrong? 
Well, he wrote the teleplay in 1954. I don't think he came back for the 90s version. I think it was just No, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, but what I find interesting is that there's no other credit given. Yeah. But obviously they updated some element of it because he wasn't I, writing about that. Yeah, and there's not that much written about the production of this movie. I find that like made to TV movies from this period are very wildly underreported unless it's like Twin Peaks which came out 7 years earlier but somehow feels more modern. But yeah. Yeah. The movie is edited by Augie Hess, who also edited Rules of Engagement, among other television things. He also edited some work on NCIS Hawaii. Uh, we got cinematography by Fred Schuler, um, who shot The King of Comedy and Amityville 3D and was a camera operator for Taxi Driver, Dog Day Afternoon, and Jaws. There is no music credit. So instead of a music credit, uh, I put a casting credit. Uh, this movie was cast by Mary Jo Slater, um, who was also the casting director for uh, the Street Fighter movie, uh, Poltergeist, The Legacy, Spawn, The Walker, Texas Ranger Show with Chuck Norris, and Kickboxer 3, The Art of War. Not bad. Not bad. <laughs> Respect preg- Just pregnant pause. <laughs> <laughs> Real pregnant pause. You can be absolutely nothing. <laughs> uh, let's run down. I guess we'll just run down in jury order. Why not? Uh, we got Courtney B. Vance as the foreman and j- juror one. Yeah, that's, that's Martin Balsam I in guess. the original. Yeah. Uh, we've got Ozzy Davis as Juror 2. Um, you may recognize from Do the Right Thing. We've got the GOAT, George C. Scott as Juror 3. <laughs> Hardcore. George C. Scott heads around here. I love George C. Scott movies. Yeah. I got see like Hardcore. A, a walking disaster in his movies. He's like a walking... like. It's inflammable. a man who looks like he's like halfway through like self-destructing at all times and boy can he yell dude he could he's one of the greatest yellers we've ever had i mean he he's incredible in in patent dr strange love and yeah. I, I also like plenty of other courtroom dramas i mean he's he's right at home in that in that franchise i mean anatomy of a murder where he's he's paired opposite to jimmy stewart uh just incredible incredible actor yeah, I, I actually recently watched a horror film with him in it, and it was like one of those ones that was made in Canada, um, but I think it's set in the U.S. and it's by uh, Peter Medak. It's called The Changeling from 1980. I've heard of that. Yeah, yeah, he's fucking great in that movie. I watched it like I don't know, maybe like six months ago, and uh, incredible movie. Armin Mueller Stahl as Juror Four. Uh, he was in Eastern Promises, Angels and Demons, and also Theodore Rex. Uh, a movie where there is a buddy cop dynamic set in the future between Whoopi Goldberg and a talking T-Rex. Mitch, are you familiar with this movie? Nope. Yeah. I can understand why you might not be this from 1995. <laughs> um, it is a deeply strange choice. I feel like in particular for, for Whoopi Goldberg to be doing in the mid nineties. Like Whoopi Goldberg was like around, you know, and like a stab, like 
This was after both sister act movies, which is to completely ignore like the color purple and like ghost and shit <laughs> and all of her comedy. Like she'd been around, bro. And so Theodore X is a movie where humans and anthropomorphic talking dinosaurs coexist. And these two are on the, a police department and they have to fight a bad guy. Um, who wants to create a new ice age that will kill mankind and let dinosaurs rule the world, I think. What a plot. Um, the movie's also got Bud Court. It's got uh, Richard Roundtree. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, man. Damn. That movie's weird as fuck. <laughs> uh, directed by a guy who doesn't have a Wikipedia page. Always his mark of quality. Yeah, really. When they when they they're, they're flying under the radar, it got a zero on Rotten Tomatoes. I think that just means it's a hidden gem. Uh, Variety said in a negative review, "This is one T Rex that won't be spared the tar pits." That's a great line from Variety. Yeah, it's a weird movie. Um, Dorian Harewood is uh, juror five. I recognized him. I couldn't place from where. Um, Full Metal Jacket, yeah, Space Jam, Sudden Death, uh, the 2005 remake of Assault on Precinct 13, Diablo 3, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Rescue Heroes. Holy fuck, this guy's my favorite, perhaps, uh, most relevant to me. Uh, so Mitch, I don't know if you know this, but on MK Podquest, uh, we watched the show Mortal Kombat Conquest all the way through. Yep. And then after that, we needed something else to do. Uh, so one of the things that we've done since is there was a 90s Mortal Kombat cartoon that had like 40 fucking episodes or some insane <laughs> shit like that. Uh, and I have watched the entire thing and done a podcast about every episode. And Dorian Harewood was a voice actor on that show, Mortal Kombat Defenders of the Realm. So I am deeply familiar with his work. Small world. Deeply. Yeah. Small world. Speaking of small world, you know who else is in this movie? James Gandolfini, bro. Where's the freaking Gabagool? Gabagool. <laughs> what a what an immense talent. Love that guy. You know who else is in this movie? Who? The boss, but not the one you're thinking of. Bruce Springsteen? Tony Danza. Tony Danza. Hey, Tony Danza. Who's the boss? Uh, we got, and then after that, the hits keep coming. Juror number eight, Jack Lemon, dude. Oh, Are you out of your mind? I love Jack Lemon. I love him. Lemon's the goat. Dude. I mean, I usually associate him in kind of like goofy Billy Wilder movies, right? Like Irma La Deuce yeah. or the, the Apartment or Some Like It Hot. Um, but near the end of his life, he made a lot of like serious dramas like this, and and again, he he did stage work too, and and so. It's it's just refreshing seeing him in a role like this. Yeah, it's always cool to see somebody make a bit of a pivot like that mm-hmm. later in their career. Just be like, I'm just gonna go do some some of this stuff. Oh, he did the China Syndrome in like the 70s, and then he did all, all sorts of stuff like in the in the 80s, and he was in Glengarry Glen Ross uh, around this time. Yeah. So yeah, no, he yeah. did a bunch of cool shit. What a guy, JFK. We love talking about JFK in these parts. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Back into the left. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Hume Cronin is juror nine. Uh, he is in Cocoon and also Cocoon the Return, uh, but perhaps more notably the Parallax View. That's Shadow a great of, movie. Just, Shadow of a Doubt as well. Yeah, also in Lifeboat and a bunch of early Hitchcock films. And um, the 1964 Hamlet. Yeah, no, the guy guy got around. Like, uh, I Battery's feel like, not included. I feel like I'm more familiar with his work from like the 40s as like a character actor, right? Like he was in the Phantom of the Opera film with Claude Rains. He was in yeah. the, the remake of the Ziegfeld Follies. Um, and again, I know him from there and then like brute force uh, in the 40s. But I feel like in that midsection he did a lot of like 50s tv like i think i've like seen him and like watching like reruns of 50s tv before or i've seen him on like episodes i but in those midsections it looks like he didn't really do that much uh like he did a lot like he was working obviously but like nothing that i would really remember a lot of this is fairly obscure yeah yeah it's cool to have him pop up in something like this but very like a very recognizable character actor yeah for sure um somebody where it's like you know his face from somewhere yeah like he he was in cleopatra like yeah and then uh as juror 10 we've got mckelty williamson uh who i mean forrest gump need we say more uh i'll i'll intentionally not say more about forrest gump because it'll be mean but uh (laughs) he's also in heat um con air species two the purge election year but uh yeah dude i fucking hate forrest gump yeah i don't like that movie either and so many people like come up to me like oh you're finally finally they're like you're a movie guy like forrest gump and i'm like sorry to break it to you i kind of hate that movie oh god finally how have we never talked about this I think we have, but yeah, no, we both don't like Forrest Gump. On the Gump. show? Not on the show, but like off off, yeah. off the airwaves. Yeah, I, I think Forrest Gump is bad. Like yeah, downright I, bad. I think it's bad too. I think it's like a little happy foxtrot through like the darkest years of American history. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and McKelty Williamson was there as Bubba. <laughs> yeah, he was. Um, It's not personal, I promise. Um. Edward James almost, dude, as juror eleven. He's great, dude. He's so good. Edward James almost fucking rules, man. The dude's awesome. Well, he's a good actor. I don't know if he necessarily ru- rules as a person. I'm going. Through I don't know anything wiki- about him. I'm going through acting. his Wikipedia. I'm just saying, be careful. Oh, is he up to some stuff? <laughs> yeah. Like what? Give me one example. Uh, like a sexual assault. No. Fuck. In 1992, a teenage girl. Oh. A- God, twice. Oh God. Yeah, there's there's several accusations. I don't know. Oh fuck. Well, uh, good performance, but that's about it. I guess he's in a lot of stuff though. Like he was in Blade Runner. Blade. Yeah. Uh, William Peterson, uh, the face of crime scene investigations. Uh, and also Manhunter. <laughs> and uh, to live and die in L.A. That's our jury. But we've got a couple more people here. We've got the judge, uh, Mary McDonnell, who was in Scream 4, Dances with Wolves, Donnie Darko, and Sneakers, among other things. 
We've got uh, Tyrese Allen as the guard who was in RoboCop and then a boatload of TV shows. And the accused, who we see very briefly in this movie, is uh, Douglas Spain, who was on Band of Brothers and is also in a movie that I like a lot, uh, but I'm a cheerleader. I've not seen it. Dude, that movie's so good. Fuck. When did it come out? 1999. Um, okay. I was alive. It's, it's, uh, it's got Natasha Lyonne. It's got Clea Duvall. RuPaul is in it. Uh, Michelle Williams is in it. Melanie Linsky's in it. Damn. Yeah, man. That movie's yeah. awesome. Um, essentially, really, uh, Julie Delphi's in it. I forgot. Um, yeah, man. That movie slaps. So the short version of that movie is essentially uh, the Natasha Lyonne character is a cheerleader at her high school but and she's got like the football playing boyfriend and all this but uh she's not that crazy about him and like it's obvious that she's just she's just gay she's just a lesbian (laughs) and when her parents figure this out they decide to declare to her that not only is she gay but she's being sent to like uh conversion therapy boot camp oh sheesh (laughs) Uh, called True Directions, which is run by RuPaul. The joke being that he's obviously also gay. Um, and then she she meets people there, and like it doesn't cure anybody of gayness at all. Uh, and you know things develop. But uh, that movie's very funny. That movie's very good. Um, it's not like a serious thing at all. It's a very uh. Aware I figured of not of RuPaul's in it, and like, <laughs> yeah, know? that movie knows exactly what it's doing. That movie, dude, that movie owns. That movie owns, dude. You should watch that. Maybe I shall. I got it on Blu-ray. On Blu-ray. Oh yeah. Wow. Put that shit. I, in. I occasionally buy movies. That was one of them. Yeah. No, I, I think I have a Blu-ray player. We could definitely. Yeah. We could definitely put that on. Um, another plot rundown for you. 12 Angry Men. If you've made it this far and don't know what 12 Angry Men is about, allow me to uh, tell you. There's a guy. This two-bit punk. There's a there's an 18-year-old who has been accused of stabbing his father to death. Notably, we learn, father was abusive. And the jury is sent to the jury room to deliberate the case after the uh, trial has played out. And the other key factor is it's really, really fucking hot outside. Um, And the air conditioning doesn't work in the room. And so everybody's real hot and real sweaty and real on edge. And they come into this jury room. And everybody's saying, man, this is open and shut. What are we even doing here? I got to make it to the Yankees game. And uh, it needs to be a unanimous vote. This this kid could be sentenced to death for it. Uh, the vote is 11 guilty, one non-guilty. And that, that man, that juror, in this case, the Jack Lemon juror, um, really leans into the whole like reasonable doubt angle and like really needed to consider all angles and give like a fair nuanced and thorough assessment of this kid's life and how he ended up in this position and what may or may not have happened. And he just says that he can't vote 
guilty. He's he's not insisting on his innocence, but that he can't vote guilty. And then over the course of the discussion, he starts gradually winning other jurors over to not just damning this kid based on the fact that it'd be easy and um you know he's an immigrant who has a record but also an abusive father and like is from a poor part of the city they just kind of want to wipe their hands of it but juror eight's not going to let that happen so fast yeah that's that's pretty much the movie that's the movie it's it's (laughs) the movie's 12 guys in a room (laughs) <laughs> like it's the yeah. ultimate bottle episode like it's just 12 guys in a room talking and then occasionally they're in the bathroom or something yeah occasionally they're they're shouting but yeah it never really leaves the room and i'm i'm all for movies like that i think we've talked i a few love times a good bottle about, episode about you know single room movies like high and low or rope yeah high and low like is mostly that it, it counts i think enough for me yeah, I know. I think it counts enough too. I think like at least like the first third of the movie is. Yeah, that is an another movie I own on Blu-ray. Wow, it's just like the greatest hits <laughs> of your collection. I guess so. Which one's gonna come up next? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. With all that said, Mitch is Twelve Angry Men guilty? <laughs> Or not guilty of being a good movie. I think it's a good movie. It's it's interesting though, because you one sort of sees this and are like, Well, like the nineteen fifty seven version is so great. Does this movie need to exist? Does the nineteen ninety seven adaptation need to exist? And then you can kind of, but if you look at it with that lens, you can kind of keep on down the looking glass and be like, "Well, does every theatrical production of it need to exist?" And, and does any movie need to? Does exist? anybody movie really need to exist? And it's it's like, on one hand, I think the 1957 version by Sidney Lumet is like a masterpiece, but I think that this movie is still really good because the source material is just great. It rips. Um, and you put a bunch of really competent actors in the same room with chemistry and the script is written in such a way that each and every single juror is given a chance to shine and through the material and, and rise above it too. Um, so I, and again, I think uh, Friedkin is a, is a really good director. Um, I think that there's definitely differences in the movie like i think the 1957 movie just feels more efficient to me and the photography even though they're very similar film to film in fact there's some shots that are like exactly the same it's not a full shot by shot remake but there's there are a lot of commonalities but i think the the black and white of the 50s version as as well as like the telephoto photography makes that film feel more claustrophobic and i think uh it the black and white gives it like a documentary feel that I, I think really hits. Um, this movie also has like an interesting sort of uh, very plain as day style. Like it would have been shot not very fancy, fancily, right? Like it's shot the same way a lot of just like lower budget productions were in the nineties. And I appreciate that yeah. both of them uh, have that, that it's loose got, way. It's got some handheld, which I think is the one like big difference maker. Yeah. Like some shaky handheld. 
yeah, there's not too much of it, but yeah, Friedkin was a big fan of 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 sort of handheld photography, and he'd been doing it since the French Connection and before. Again, he started his career in television and in broadcasting. I think uh, I'm not sure with which which might have been NBC, but I don't remember. Um, so yeah, he, like he's definitely that's like definitely his style, his bread and butter, and he's back making this sort of prestige uh, television production here for MGM Television. Um, but I do think the difference between black and white and color makes it a huge difference. And I'm more partial to the black and white. I also think I prefer the cast in the 1957 version, but that's not a knock against this version at all. I'm a huge fan of a lot of the performances here. I think George C. Scott is, uh, extraordinary as always i think you'd be hard pressed to find a, a a lousy george c scott movie even the ones where he like reportedly drank all the way through i think they're good um but uh no just a just a very fine uh stage actor who who translates beautifully to the screen um a, a great actor through and through and i, I think uh, the, the the cast here is really good i don't i love jack lemon as an actor and i think he does a good job here like a really good job uh, but I'm more partial to Henry Fonda in that role, in the role of juror number eight, Davis. Um, but Lemon's really good here, too. It's it's interesting that the age difference between both men when they played the parts, uh, Lemon being much older here and Fonda being a relatively young man. Um, I think it gives... I think it that- does change the message, not the message, it changes a little bit of how you perceive where the message of the film is coming from when it's from somebody older yes yeah i think the energy too right like lemon's character it's not that it's like moralizing or anything because like it's kind of inherently so but like when it's coming from an older it's like it feels like more of a generational message than a like an impetus of like the hey we can do better right now as individuals and as as and as a society it's more just like a remember to not be fucking terrible yeah yeah definitely i, if, I think if that, that makes sense i think that's that's you're you're on the money there and so i think you know it's it that that is like a different uh um sort of thing and i think um jack lemon feels like he's really fighting for his life in this one henry fonda too in the original but he's a younger man so he has maybe like more vitality um so it translates difference in the performances and the, the relationship with the juror right i think Jack Lemon has the vulnerability with age. So in some ways it makes it a more interesting performance, but I still lean towards Henry Fonda and we can unpack why. But all in all, yeah, I think that this is a really good adaptation. It's not my favorite adaptation, but it's a really good movie and I really like the cast and everything else. So I would love to hear your thoughts and we can kind of pick apart 12 Angry Men. Yeah, one thing I would do want to say up front as I did earlier is that part of the something that frustrates me a little bit is that I feel like I don't have like a bulletproof recollection of the original mm-hmm. or how I would have specifically felt about it. So um, I can't make a ton of very direct comparisons, but um, in general, what I will say is I really, really like this. Um, and I think the easiest way to put it is that at a certain point, I just kind of stopped taking notes because I was too wrapped up in enjoying what I was watching. Like I was just having a good time and was like compelled and really, um, you know, I was just gripped by the performances and how everything was getting put together and what was going on with everything that 
I just was focused on that. And I think that's a testament to the movie that it was just, you know, kind of all encompassing that way. Um, and I think that everybody shows up if, if you know what I mean, like, I don't think there's a super weak bone here. Um, I don't think anything is like hugely lost. Um, I think maybe, I don't know if I'm the right person to speak to this and I don't want to say something that sounds completely like I'm just talking out of my ass and have no idea what I'm saying, but in updating the movie by 40 years and having, I think the biggest change obviously is that the jury's not entirely white and yeah. um, Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you there. Um, and also like an element of the, the accused is that they're Latino. Um, the one thing that sat strangely with me was having the the racism of the film the xenophobia of the film come from like a nation of islam kind of styled just like angry black guy yeah i don't think i can articulate why without sounding like i'm gonna put my foot in my mouth but that that was a bizarre choice when I think there are other jurors in the performances as they're giving them by the white actors that feel better suited to that outburst. However, I would be more than happy to be corrected or told otherwise, or given context that I may be missing that would make that decision make a little bit more sense to me because I don't know. I'll admit that, but something about it felt, Something about it felt like a strange choice. Yeah, and and how it I think how it also clashes with the original script as well because they they keep a lot of the original dialogue from like the old man like that that character who says you're an ignorant man and and like the verbatim I, it just it plays weirdly. Um, yeah, and I think that I think that's always going to happen when you. It's the same thing that people say about. Like when you do a Shakespeare movie and you don't update the dialogue, but you put it in like 2014 <laughs> and it's just like, oh, weird. Um, But yeah, something about that sat strangely. I think his performance is very good and I don't think there's anything like I'm not necessarily saying there's something inherently along with it. Really, I don't know. It just kind of felt like a an interesting choice uh, yeah. maybe maybe a strange one especially in the in the final monologue that he delivers where he's yeah spouting i think like racial replacement theory and, and and stuff like that like it's it is really jarring um i think just just that casting choice and, and that scripting choice to keep the the original um dialogue from like the like the 50s film but to to translate it over where where they update a lot of it in other cases uh so it just it's jarring yeah, and now, like, what I do want to say is, like, I do understand that, like, you know, the Nation of Islam is, like, a nationalist organization and yeah. might, like, may identify on some level with some element of, uh, like, replacement theory as... I don't means, know. As a means of pushing back against, like, um, white 
racism and xenophobia, mm. but I don't know is the problem. The problem is I that might be a thing, but I don't know. So um, instead of putting my foot in my mouth repeatedly, um, I'll say that I, I do know in a general sense that there is an element of um like uh like a prioritization of blackness that may be the thought process being you know that kind of theory and that sort of desire to uphold um and prioritize um blackness and like people in the nation of islam and against like racism from whites and by extension like a a not a non-trust of others maybe that's what they're going at um if it is i understand it but at the same time i do want to concede that um there may have been other thoughts there or there may have been context that i just don't know i think that was the one element of the update that most sat weird with me it's a confusing choice because it's something that i don't really know a lot about i'm not sure if other viewers would too so yeah and i yeah like i guess the biggest thing that i wonder is like do folks react that way in general also like am i reacting that way because i'm white and uh a black guy is being racist and i just feel weird about that like there's a lot of things that could be happening here i don't know um but that would that would be the biggest update that i thought seemed like it was different to me um that said in a general sense and certainly with all of the other beats in mind and even that one i'm not i'm not even saying it's bad i'm just saying i didn't entirely know what to make of it but um like all the performances here are so good man mm-hmm. everybody is just absolutely fucking dialed and i and i think that um the story has a timelessness to it that even if um it feels a little bit more moralizing and maybe um preachy coming from a jack lemon character that is older and more of like uh that like cross-generational messaging um it does not feel like a misguided attempt at getting this message across and it does not feel like um you know silly to do it that way or something like it just it still really hits and it is encouraging to see such a strong focus being put on, you know, wanting to do the right thing by a fellow person. And I think it all, I, I do think it all kind of comes together uh, overall. Yeah. I, I really like this movie because I feel like with so many uh, courtroom dramas, they just, they make it all play out in the, in the courtroom as the name implies. But this one with the jury, I I feel like it's it's unique in that sense, like this this sort of script where you you just have a legal drama, but with ordinary people colliding. It, it's it's so much more accessible. It's people who don't necessarily have the firmest grasp on the law and the legal process coming to terms with it and and, and parsing it out, even though it's tough to parse. It's uh, I think it will always stand the test of time. Uh, so long as our our law kind of works this way, um, our laws work this way. So it's 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 so great. Uh, when we were speaking, because you you have talked about the performances in the cast a little bit, and you were saying uh, off mic that you might prefer 
this cast to the original cast. Yeah, I do want to couch that comment in acknowledging that I don't remember the original like the back of my hand. So maybe okay. if I watched the original again, maybe I'd feel that way. But it just just this just feels like a powerhouse in a way that's like really hard to argue with. And I found myself like struck by how into it I was and how dialed everybody felt and how everything felt like it was really ratcheting up at the right pace and people were keeping up and nobody felt like miscast or misplaced or anything like that. Um, I think I just say that because it just felt like it really hit. That doesn't mean that I could not be persuaded otherwise, but I think it's just a testament to how good it is overall. Yeah. I think it's I think it's definitely in your in your interest to go back and see if, if you're like on your twelve yeah, angle. I don't I don't think I've seen it since like twelfth grade. Yeah, yeah. Grade. Again, it's 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 uh it's one of those ones that everyone kind of saw long ago. Yeah, like I saw it in a grade like ten or eleven, like a law class. Yeah. <laughs> like very boilerplate use of that movie. <laughs> No, I get like excited when I think about Lee J. Cobb's performance in that film. Uh, and when you compare him to George C. Scott, I mean, George C. Scott's like the perfect guy to play Lee J. Cobb because, I mean, both of those guys, just heavyweight yellers. Yeah. You know? Are they the same? They're playing the same juror? Yeah, yeah. They're, pl- they're both playing juror number three. Yeah. Dude. And George again, C. Scott is the fucking king of screaming. I think Lee J. Cobb's a pretty close like second, or or I think they could go in the ring. I mean, on the <laughs> on the waterfront, uh, yeah, like so many other uh, great movies. Uh, Party Girl, uh, what yeah, but else? That that outburst that George C. Scott has at the end, dude. It's a, it's pretty much a mental breakdown. Fuck, it's so good. Yeah, my god. It, I it, wish I took more notes so I could quote that because he just absolutely loses it. He he falls apart as a man, and it's 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 interesting because they kind of play it up with his relationship with his own son, where you know he yeah, he's just pro- he's just projecting. He like, immediately decides to be uh, not cool and unmysterious and shares too much, you know. Oh yeah, absolutely. That he's is oversharing. A huge like, overshare. It's like ah, oh, my son. He walked away from a fight, and I was so ashamed I almost got sick. And I showed him, and then he punched me in the face, and I haven't seen him in 18 years. And 18 years? They're all so ungrateful. That ungrateful slob. <laughs> I'm not a piece of shit. There's you a are. Lot of, the, You're the piece of shit. There's a lot of really, like, flawed people, and people, like, I think relatable people. and all Human of them, people. All of, Yeah, it's a very human story, and I think, like, again, you're talking about how they're just people from basic walks of lives. William <laughs> Peterson, who's who's this sort of fickle he's, advertising executive. He's human. Who's got... <laughs> human. Who's got like, just, like, sawdust between the ears. This, this fickle ad man who's, who's like, oh, I could go this way, or I could go that way. Yeah, real wishy-washy, just, like, go with the pack, like... Yeah. It's also so funny that he's an ad exec and he's so ready to just like agree with whatever anybody else is saying. He is a yes man. And absolutely. I think think, like it's so interesting to see all these different kinds of people colliding. I mean, uh, again, William Peterson's character, like when the 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 bigger characters are kind of bulldozing around the room, he almost like gets pushed aside and he physically with how he collides with other characters, he's very (laughs) 
very uh, hands off and non confrontational. And so I think it's it's just interesting to see like how the bystander effect uh, works with all these characters. And and Gandolfini is is also just oh so my charming. god, he's so good. And how he's standing up for the old man. I love that. Yeah, it, the James Gandolfini like reveal. Um. By which I just mean, like, as we gradually get, like, a better sense of what he's like, like, I think that's just so smartly done because your initial read is just like, ah, this fucking dumbass, you know, just like he's going to be one of those just sort of like clueless dudes or whatever. And then just like the thoughtfulness just kind of comes out very gradually. And I'm just like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's the good stuff. And then he's still got time to joke about the old ball and chain, dude. Oh, fuck. Yeah, no. James Gandolfini is really wonderful here. God, he's um, so good, and, and he's guess, so not Tony Soprano. Well, I don't great. think he had done The Sopranos by this point. This was 1997. Yeah, but what I mean is, like, it's nice to not just like. It's, I'm glad that we're not, not not just saying like, oh, he's in his Sopranos bag. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah, this was before then. It's again like a major television production for the time, but before then, and it's it is interesting because I I think like I keep using the word interesting, but. It it's, is interesting. It, These things are interesting. <laughs> this is all very interesting. I'm so intrigued. I'm interested. But ah. it's it's cool how um this this film feels so old. Like I guess it's like the the source material, but it feels like it could have been made like any any time, really. Um, yeah, and it, it's got a bit of an identity crisis in terms of when it's set. Like we were talking about that earlier with with just the absence of, of women, but the decision to update the film along racial lines. I think it's, I wish that William Friedkin had, I guess just, the women update was that the judge is now a woman. Yeah. I guess but, that's, that's what they were going for. But that's, that's like, like whatever, but I, like, it's one scene. You know, I wish that they had, I wish that they had, up, he had gone one step further and updated it. Cause I would have really liked that. But, I don't know. Then I think you might need some rewrites to have like your characters think and act like people who identify like like women. Because I feel like if you just have them saying the dialogue of a man, it wouldn't really be true. And they'd yeah, you need you would, it would need situation. updating to the point where maybe like it's a framework you could use to do a similar but more contemporary thing. And I would like, like it, to see that. But. Yeah, like at that point, it doesn't need to strictly be 12 Angry Men, but it could just be like similar premise, courtroom drama, chuck a jury in a room, let's examine contemporary humanity kind of yeah. situation. Um, the fact that it's all dudes, I think... Um, being dudes. It could have been updated here. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't think it's like the worst oversight or anything uh, mm. because I think what comes together here is still quite good, but I totally get what you mean. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's tough to talk about a movie that just like hits its marks. You know what I mean? Like it set goals and it generally succeeds in them. <laughs> like, yeah. And it, you know, it, it's such a tight script. I, it almost never lets go, which is really impressive from a film. That's all just talking. Um, that it can hold your yeah. attention for an hour and 50 minutes, right? You're just watching these guys. And uh, it never loses you is the big thing, right? No. Like, I, I never got bored and wanted to like check my phone and go like fucking do whatever. Like it's just 
got you going. There's there's just so much deconstruction of this event and, and such a precision and attention to detail. And, you know, uh, I think a real flair for drama, too, like the the part where he pulls out the identical switchblade and stabs it on the table next to the actual. Oh, my knife. God, dude, that is like that is like a fucking Avengers reveal. Yeah. That's or, like the crowd starts like hooting and hollering. Dude. There's a lot of oh, shit moments or yeah. the, the, where James the, where uh, where George C. Scott has the knife up against uh, Henry Fonda, right? And he's like, and they're trying to determine the angle at which you would stab someone who's taller than you. Yeah. Or when uh, Dorian Harewood's character like breaks because they're talking so dismissively about, um, because the, the accused guys from like a poor part of the city and yeah. then the guy starts getting like racist and not, and like just uh, xenophobic and like yeah. classist about it. And he just fucking snaps and it's just like, Oh, so good yeah it's it's a really cool it's a real showcase movie. it's a real showcase it's, it's it's an actor's movie uh yeah. friedkin's direction i think is is virtually invisible here like all the the calling yeah. cards of his direction and that's not a bad thing yeah i do also think just to circle back before we move on entirely i'm thinking about it and it's like it, it is a very masculine movie it is like the relationship being examined here almost isn't really like a social one as it is like a dynamic amongst men (laughs) in society just like self-destructive like yeah like toxic masculinity on display the like generational passing down of like trauma and bad habits and just just not engaging too hot of a day and too much testosterone in the room and Yeah, yeah that's all it takes Oh, I love a movie where part of the gimmick is like the weather. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like Dog Day Afternoon. That's Sydney Lumet is, is a is a genius of stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, bank robbery. Or again. speaking of, because we mentioned uh, do the right thing, but like, yes, yeah, that was a real hot day. God, it's just such a. It is. I can't believe we don't regularly get more movies. I know if every movie did it, it wouldn't really work. But like. I'm surprised people don't exploit that more often because it's instantly in- it compelling. Yeah. To like the 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 X factor of everybody's pissed and also it's really fucking hot and everybody's aggravated that it's hot and, outside. And the room looks like a piece of shit and they're fighting with the air conditioner and they're becoming increasingly more irritable and there's there's they're they're loosening their neckties and taking off their jackets and sweating yeah. through their shirts and shouting it's it it gives it tension yeah just how yeah like how the elements i think it's it's so effective here because like it's it's like the earth it's the intangible having an effect on like the the very human concerns at play like it's very much like people reacting to people and then people reacting to things that they can't control like the fact that it's really fucking hot yeah and then um, finally, when the when the rain falls near the end of the film, oh, and and textbook. and and it cuts the heat, and then they're all suddenly there, and the the heat is gone, and they're and they're sort of sober, and they're trying to, to solve through and win over the last part yeah, of the argument. There's a clarity. The but heat is toxic masculinity. There's a clarity that washes over like most of the people, but but then textbook. some of them are just so stuck in their ways that they're not going to. Yeah, textbook, and they also look the most riled up by the end like they still have that heat yeah to it. they they've gone too far yeah 
Um, and I think that there's some other performances that we're not talking about, like the the bespectacled German fellow. I oh think. my god, he's so good. I forget what, what number his his name is. Or uh, number his is. number is four, isn't he? Isn't he right after George C. Scott? Yes, yes, yeah. That's Armin Müller Stahl. Yes, yeah. He's God, really good. So good. And I think he plays a good devil's advocate. Like there's no um apparent malice or, or prejudice to him. There's just this kind of logical, mechanical style of thinking. And and uh he's able to be disarmed with facts. Uh whereas and, Dude, and yeah, the way tell. that it plays out his like um being won over of just like I don't think this would happen. And then it just happens and he goes, okay, I guess it can happen. Yeah. Well, they, they just kind of explain it and dismantle it. And he's open yeah. to the argument and all the people yeah. are, except for sort of George C. Scott's character until he's over, overrun. Right. Yeah. But even I, lo- I love the way that Armin Mueller reacts because like, he's not just one over, but he's like sheepish about having been wrong. Yes. He's like, oh, I said that. And it's like, no, clearly that's not true. Like, he's like make having like a genuine reconsideration. It is almost like embarrassed for having not been able to have seen that earlier. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think we see that with Tony Danza as well as juror number seven, like the sales. Yeah. And I think it's a fanatic. simplified version. Um, but yeah. Well, how'd you feel about Tony Danza? Because he's like the the silliest element i guess of the whole thing uh to he's, a point he's very a... like new york <laughs> like, hey, i'm wearing a jersey to jury duty ah, ah, wanna... what do you mean <laughs> yeah no he's he's uh he's good here he's fun here i think he plays a really good uh coward or, or like a um just someone uh, yeah. who's, who's a guy who just doesn't want to engage uninvolved and 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 really just just uh I think to some degree, like kind of callous, uh, or just very detached from. He just from doesn't care. Situation, like, self-serving and selfish. Yeah. Um, I prefer Jack Warden in the original film. I think that he plays that sort of a boorish character better. Uh, I, I and Jack Warden's performances in, in Sidney Lumet's movies are are extraordinary. I mean, he's wonderful in The Verdict, which is my favorite legal drama of all time, also by Sidney Lumet, who directed. The original, but um, yeah, no. Tony Danza is is really good here, and I think the he does a lot of back and forth, um, but more out of a means of convenience. Yeah, and then in the end, where the uh, when the the clockmaker, um, oh, where he confronts him, dude, he, he's so good. He it's demands that, that he, guy sucks. He's yeah. so good. He demands that he gives him reasons uh, for for why he switched, um, and he's like, "Yeah, I don't have to tell you shit." <laughs> like, well, he I also really he just says he's persuaded, and, and it seems yeah. genuine. And I think he seems yeah. ashamed, but he's kind of quiet about it. Yeah, Ozzy Davis is really good here too, as like the he. I feel like him. He just like out like I don't know. There's just something about him that I like. Because, like, I'm trying to articulate, like, what his archetype to it all was. Juror number two. And um, I'm blanking, which is bad when you make a podcast where you have to talk about the thing that you're talking about. But I like him, is my point. <laughs> yeah, he's he's really great here. Uh, I Kind of a more... Uh, 
I think a muted performance compared to all the other. Some of the other ones are men. much more. Yeah, like, uh, I like I, well, and like Hume Cronin too is like his whole thing is like just like being disrespected because he's mad old and like not knowing how to get a word in with all these like hot blooded screaming freak shows. Yeah, and I, I and he, there's that one point where he says, "I wish I was twenty years younger" or whatever. Yeah, right? like he's being disrespected because he wants to like really engage with what jack lemon's character is trying to do and he and just doesn't feel like he can there's that one speech that he delivers in the middle of the film and it's the same as the original where he talks about what it's like to i know this man better than anyone else in this room the old man who gives the testimony yeah. he says to to be a nobody to be yeah. not remembered for people to not ask you for advice or to like to not get your name in newspapers, to be a nobody to no one and having done nothing with your life. And that's why you might misremember something or be economical with the facts. Not like a... So heartbreaking. Not like a a, a clearly planned lie, but just, just sort of a, a bias or like a, a heartbreaking tragedy. A lie of convenience. Yeah. A lie of convenience or, or just uh, like a... a Desire to have something going on. Yeah, and that monologue from from him is is really, I think, astute and just dialed the fuck in. It it, it and beautifully delivered. God, he's yeah. good. Everyone's he's good. really great. Everyone's great. Yeah, it's a very good remake of very good material. Yeah, I think it's kind of that easy, right? Like, I, I would say watch the original one first, but you can't go wrong if this is your your first way into it you know it's it's a really solid production yeah i love the costuming yeah i feel like everybody's outfit does a good job saying something about them which i know is like literally what the point of that is but it's good it's just so like plain and and the room itself is is so plain just like the the tables look miserable the windows look miserable i would hate to spend any time in this room but if you've ever been in like an old office building like that with the windows that open that way and could almost smell this room and, and yeah, that's a mildewy room yeah and, for and sure dude and everyone's wearing kind of like rumpled shirts or or uh their, their collars are looking like worn <sighs> It's it's their, their ties are kind of their their knots are, are askew and they're 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 apart. It all just works for this the sense of heat and 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 uh, yeah, they were really cooking. Yeah, and of course, there's other characters like the like the logical sort of uh, bank man that we were talking about with the glasses, uh, number four, who never sweats and he and he's very buttoned. Oh, that's up so funny. Yeah, two comparison. guys that don't sweat is so good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah good movie good movie great movie great yeah i would say great movie yeah it is kind of fun seeing it in this sort of made for uh tv format i was surprised when the movie started in the ass and it was four by three i was like is this fucking (laughs) tv movie like I feel like if you caught this one in 1997 on TV, it would have been a heater. Like you wouldn't have been able to get away from the screen. No, this has, this has to be one where anytime it played, it was one of those things where like it sucked in your dad. Yeah, you like and you he ended up watching the, the rest of it. Family to watch this one. Yeah. Hey, everybody, can me. I don't know why he's in the movie now. Yeah, <laughs> Twelve Angry Men. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> get over here. 
you come for Jack Lemon, you stay for George C. Scott. Dude, George C. Scott, legend. Legend. Um, underrated element of it that we actually haven't talked about the physicality of it's really interestingly used. Like when the when Jack Lemon is the pacing around the room and stuff. Yeah, the, like the blocking like, or, or yeah, yeah. Well, it's just like they're they're very economical about like how they're using the room, but also just like the physical element in a movie that's a lot of guys sitting at a table. It's just like very smartly used. Yeah, I mean, it almost feels as though it was seamlessly done as a stage sort of thing, and then yeah, they did, I think it might have been. It feels that way because the 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 sense of continuity that you get from all the takes, it, it just feels like they just ripped through it in one go. I know that's how they did it with a lot of the original movie. Yeah. You really That's gotta get those shot guys. In three weeks. Yeah, you really gotta get those guys <laughs> memorizing those lines. Mm-hmm. I will say, anytime I see a thing like this, and I know that there's like a stage version, I'm always like, "How the fuck do people memorize lines, man? Fuck, yeah. so many people are doing so much talking." Yeah, yeah. And like, fuck, I, I see a lot of myself in, in some of these characters, too, you know, and that's that's like another thing that's great. Like if you have a, a tendency to use like comedy to to deflect for something, right? Like the I think the no, ad, surely nobody on this podcast has a tendency to do that. No, no. But like no. Out of the, the ad executive by William uh, Peterson, you know, put, yeah, like uh, let's see if we can put this uh, bowl on the stoop and see if anyone let's see if the cat see looks if the it cat up. looks it up right and everybody's just like dude somebody's gonna die if we don't figure yeah. this out like i feel like that would be me in that situation just using a dumb saying to try to, to, to diffuse some of the yeah tension. or just make yourself feel better <laughs> like just like eh, i'm doing a bit though yeah. don't worry i'm just doing a bit yeah oh. i wish okay. liam was here i wonder what he would so think of I. it um, if he was able to see it from the car, how about he tells us right now? Yeah, I think that that kind of wraps it up for me. Now that we've got Liam's take, or maybe we don't, but maybe we do. Hopefully, we do, but maybe we don't, but hopefully, we will. Um, yeah, that's enough pe- for me. People should watch this. Yeah, it's a positive, positive movie. I, this is one that I wanted to do for a while. It's kind of since I started on this podcast, it's always been on my radar. So I'm glad we kind of we crossed this one off the list. Yeah, it's very TMAO. It is. And uh, I, I'm picking what we're doing next week. I know that. Yes. Uh, we actually did the big we did a big fancy choreographed explosions and fire in the sky kind of reveal when we recorded in person and then life intervened. So what I'm actually going to do is we already know what we're doing. It's a retcon to redo of a previous week. And uh, I think it's worth getting excited about cue all the shouting. Let's say you're wondering what we're going to do next week. And then this happens. This can only mean one thing. Are we going to the danger zone? We're going to the danger zone, baby. Oh, yeah. It's Top Gun time. We've been waiting for so long. I'm going to turn this down. We've been waiting so long to talk about Top Gun. I'm just going to let this play in the background. Are we going to get a copyright strike for that? I have no idea. We're going to find em. out. Fuck them. So, Fuck them. Fuck them. So uh, we've been Top Gun Maverick is like the most they made another one ass movie that for I sure. feel like has come out recently that we haven't done. Like it's one of the most high profile, Highest one of the grossing. most financially successful, and we just kind of haven't gotten to it yet. So not only are we finally getting to Top Gun Maverick, but we have a special guest um, 
borderline uh, number one uh, Top Gun Maverick super fan joining us as well. I will call her that. Um, it's our friend Cassie, who Mitch and I know from the place that we work. From from work, yes. From the place that we work. She is a veritable Top Gun Maverick stan, yeah. I would say. And uh, she is just absolutely rearing to talk about Top Gun. So it's time to... It's time to do that, I think. And we're going to do that. And my my challenge to you all is uh, by the time we do the episode, because Cassie does have one, and I will let her say what it is, uh, you do need a, 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 a fighter pilot call sign, please, if, if you could. Um, like Maverick from Top Gun Maverick. His is Maverick, uh, if you didn't know that. So, yeah, it's Top Gun time. Whoa. Yeah, it was uh it was I know that was a lot to witness in person and uh no doubt it's a lot to hear all over again. So we've got that coming up. Cassie's gonna be on, which uh I think will be a lot of fun. Liam will be back, uh, which will be great. And uh yeah, we're all ready to go. Um so saddle up for the for the big blue skies. Danger and zone, baby. Danger zone, baby. Um yeah, coming up. Uh, Mitch, you have anything you want to plug? <laughs> Sorry, I just got to get my... Uh... You got a really good idea here or what? <laughs> I wouldn't give a buffalo nickel for a psychiatrist testimony. Do we know what a buffalo nickel is? Because I have no idea. A turn of phrase that seems strange in a 1997 production. Yeah, hang on. Define buffalo nickel. A buffalo nickel is a copper nickel five cent piece that was struck by the United States Mint from 1913-1938. The buffalo nickel is said to have been designed to commemorate the American Indian, according to OzarkBisons.com. So is he being is he being racist <laughs> when he says that or what? I don't know what it means. I feel like by that point it would have been worthless currency, but in 1997, a thing like that was probably a collector's item, so I don't really understand. I don't either. Again, one of the many things that is jarring. A weird anachronism. (laughs) Buffalo nickels. Anyway, that was supposed to be my outro, and I've sparked more discussion. That's fine. Ah! Ah! (laughs) Um, If you want to catch up with what Liam's doing when he's not trapped in a car... Um, Graham the Haunted Marshmallow is his uh, film writing alter ego. You can find that on Twitter and Letterbox at Graham the Mallow. Uh, he also makes music, um, both on a YouTube channel for solo stuff that we don't shut out a lot, and I'll just do this impromptu. Uh, that channel is just me in the house by myself, and um, he's also in a band which will be linked below uh, with other friends of ours called Guest Room Status, which you should listen to. Um, if you enjoy music that's good, um, that's where you can do that. And uh, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Mr. Corey Price. You can listen to the other podcasts that I do, including MK PodQuest, which I talked about earlier, uh, with our friend Neil, and Strat 2 with our friend Callum as the F1 season approaches. Um, those are all on social media at Strat2F1 or MK PodQuest. And you can also go to MortalCombatConquest.ca. There's a bunch of links to a whole bunch of stuff. Thank you all once again for listening to this episode of They Made Another One. You can find us all over the internet on Twitter at They Made Another, which is all one word on Letterboxd at TMAO. 
You can find episodes on Anchor, Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Breaker, and everything else as they made another one. You can reach us via email at tmaopodcast at gmail.com with recommendations for future episodes, questions, comments, and what you think a buffalo nickel is and what it means in this context. Our fantastic thumbnail art is done by Jade Dickinson. You can find on Instagram at Jade Sketches. And with all that out of the way, we're going to the fucking danger zone. Next week. Danger zone, baby. Baby. Oh, they made another one, baby. <laughs>